0: No, I don't want to drag your show out with all of my meandering or about how much I hate the Powers TV show.
1: <laughs> oh, Scott, if if the next time there's a Powers collection, you and I are just going to hate talk the Powers TV show.
0: That's... I'm there. I have to work Skype now, so I'm totally there. I forgot that that
1: even existed.
0: As uh, well you should. Oh, the
1: world was such a better place 45 seconds ago i'm no. so sorry <laughs> it, it's not your fault scott it's not your fault it's the playstation network that's the first sign right there that there's a problem yeah when fx won't even air your show our high quality standards mean that we can only have a football fantasy series called the league but we can't do your superhero show yeah no you're going
0: to need 30 minutes for me to talk about power so we'll catch that <laughs> on the floor sounds good
2: welcome to Man. <laughs>
1: The X Men podcast is meant to be entertaining, informative, and hyperbolic, and should not be taken literally or on vacation if you've only been dating for a couple of months because, oh man, it's going to be awkward when you break up right after the plane ride home. Or before, that's even worse and you're going to sit on the plane next to someone that doesn't love you anymore. Just separate vacations until you've been together for like at least a year. Trust me on this one. Unless it's like a weekend. You can do a weekend.
2: Are you okay? Uh,
1: The Vex Men believe that there's room for all tastes and all opinions in comics. Even those people who think that the Powers television show is the best comic book adaptation that exists. For the record, that person is not myself or Scott Wood. Welcome to the Vex Men Podcast, where this week we are talking about Lock and Key by Joe Hill and Gabrielle Rodriguez. I'm Adam Stone.
2: I'm Austin Hendricks.
0: I'm Scott Woods. I don't know. Am I doing that? Yeah.
2: Yeah, that yeah. was great. That was great. <laughs> that
1: that was, was perfect. <laughs> There's always one of us that usually ends up being like, oh, right. I'm, who am I?
2: <laughs> That's always me. So this time it was not me. It was someone else. I said my name when I was supposed to. <laughs> Take that, Anthony. It's because you weren't
1: here. Scott Woods, of course, you have your own podcast.
0: Yeah. It has nothing to do with Joe Hill. Um, <laughs> although although I have mentioned his father once or twice. um, (laughs) Yeah, I do, when I feel like it, I do a podcast called Race Against the Machine with a co-host. His name is Aaron No Name, and we talk about race and racism and uh, anything that kind of glancingly touches along the issue of racism, which almost everything does. That's almost kind of the purpose of the show is to, Make everything touch racism,
1: so and it's very easy. Touching racism. There's a phrase you don't often hear.
0: Yeah, um, we got the name from a white guy, actually. Uh, <laughs> so oh no! I was trying. To, yeah, I know, right? I, I probably I've never shared that, but uh, there you go. No, I, I love doing the show, but it's really it's emotionally debilitating, right? Which is why we can't do it every week. Yeah. And you know, we're both individually really busy. And our shows are really long, they're like an hour and a half every time we do them. So we don't do them, like, we don't have a regular schedule for that. Yeah. So we try to pack everything into into one when we get our chances.
1: Yeah, The the we also have the, the long podcast recordings, and the debilitating thing is the reason why we can't talk about DC Comics more than every three weeks. <laughs> uh, although we are going to talk about that after we hang up, there's, rebirth is still happening. Uh, uh, as, as a comic book fan, Scott, I hope you're not reading any of them.
0: <laughs> I'm not even close.
1: Good, good.
2: So first, how many spoilers can we do? Can we do any spoilers? I, I think we
1: can do some spoilers. Like, my my thing is I, I'm not planning on giving away anything that happens in Volume 6. Okay. Or really talk too much about, like, the plot stuff. You know, maybe the plot of the first two trades or such. Um, there's so much else to talk about with this it besides just the plot. Yeah.
2: Yeah, um, I went into it only knowing that it was, like, vaguely horror Lovecraftian stuff. Which it kind of is, but not really. Um, The way I described it to Adam earlier was, it feels like remembering reading the Chronicles of Narnia, where you have these kids kind of find this magical world in their house after something terrible has happened, but with everything turned up to ten. Mostly the violence.
1: So Lock and Key is the story of a family... Who, the father and mother originally are from the East Coast. They move out to the West Coast because of something that happens in their past. Uh, And when the story starts, the father is brutally murdered by two of his students. He's a guidance counselor. And then Lock and Key follows what happens to the family after the father is brutally murdered. And it's a heartwarming tale of togetherness. (laughs) Yes.
2: i mean that's not wrong
1: (laughs) it's wrong
0: spread out over many books that is technically true you know i'm a really big lovecraft head i think part of the reason why after the first one i was just kind of like yeah whatever is because it seemed like another one of those things that kind of threw lovecraft onto it but didn't really have anything to do with lovecraft it was just kind of creepy and so that kind of may that may have turned me off at the time um and it wasn't until you know numerous volumes later that we kind of get into the heart of it and you realize oh this is glancingly lovecraftian you know Uh,
2: it's not lovecraftian in the way that i think most people would think of it they're just kind of the brooding eastern town (laughs) (laughs) with weird monsters maybe sometimes. Right. Yeah.
1: But they don't have many tentacles and it doesn't uh, quite have the inherent racism of your average Lovecraft story.
0: <laughs> no, it's, it's extremely diverse for something vaguely Lovecraftian. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's funny because when I was reading it all together now and it all ties together, it kind of reminded me of uh, Stephen King's uh, one of his more recent books, Revival. Which is a standalone novel. It came out, I think, maybe a year or maybe two ago. Because, you know, he puts out two books a year. Right. And so that one was pretty straight up. It was just like, you know, two people, two normal people doing slightly less than normal things, but nothing particularly supernatural. And then at the end, it's like Lovecraft. And I was just like, oh, my God. You know, so it was like really (laughs) glancingly Lovecraft as well kind of like and this one is kind of like that as well. This one probably has as much Lovecraft as his father's book had in that, you know. So, I thought that was interesting. I'm pretty yeah. sure that I, well, I mean, if there is any relationship between the two works, I imagine the father got that from the son a little bit.
2: Yeah.
0: But um but yeah, it was uh but I but I where I thought Stephen King's Revival book, it doesn't really pay off. I thought Lock and Key Extremely paid off. I <laughs> love this series.
1: Yeah, man, that it from beginning to end, it never really slowed down for me. There was yeah. never a point where I was like, "Oh, come on, get to the next point of this story."
2: Uh, it yeah. is really satisfying that they do go back to like the very beginning of this whole saga. Yeah, and they, like
1: they do at some point do some some origin. Oh. But
2: it's, like, so late in the story that yeah. you're just like, holy crap, holy shit, I actually know what's going to happen now, oh my god!
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I love it when writers do that. Like, they don't need to say, like, let's start at the beginning of the story where the boring things happen, and then we'll get to the He was like, no, we're starting with this murder, we're gonna follow this family, and then eventually, like, so this goes back to to the colonial times and the war against the British,
2: Yeah, there's, like, a lot of interesting nods to, like, this greater mythology that you never find out about because the kids are bad at looking through the house.
1: Yeah, Um. the the kids are not researchers, they're kids. And that's, I really like the fact that the two high school students are written as pretty realistic high school students. And the yeah. younger brother plays off like a younger brother. But yeah, in the in the first volumes, you've got these, these kids that have been through this huge tragedy, and then they're moved to their dad's old house, and it's this New England school, and it is a lot like the New England schools that I went to, so it seemed realistic to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they have a hard time fitting in, but not like your stereotypical after-school special hard time fitting in
2: like nobody's particularly mean to them. They're just kind of like, this terrible trauma happened to us, and we don't know how to relate to normal people anymore. And everyone's like, "Do you come to (laughs) a (laughs) party? You can be fret. I don't. You no. You're cursed."
1: Yeah. Oh, they are cursed, and they sort of they get to the magic pretty much right away too.
0: Uh, yeah.
2: They introduce the magic through the well lady. Yeah,
1: so yeah there, there is a woman at the beginning of the series who is the lady in the well, who is uh, at first you think just some sort of spirit haunting the house, but it turns out to go a lot deeper than that.
0: Here's the thing I walked away from this entire series experience with was like, I, I'm trying to decide if Joe Hill got really lucky or if Joe Hill is a genius because this whole series is so tightly wound. Even parts that I thought were kind of throwaway in the middle turn out to be kind of relevant by the end. Yeah. He, you know, he really strings all of his threads back together real nice and tight. And I mean, I was just really floored by how, by the, you know, by the last volume that I was just like, oh my God, everything kind of came back or things were yeah. resolved or, or, or. But it was all really. I mean, it's just a really tight series and even when I thought it was just going way left, it it still kind of came back to whatever the central I don't wanna obviously I don't want to spoil what the central conceit of the story is, but but it, it all comes back, you know. Even when he takes like the you know, the the Calvin and Hobbes left turn, you know, and I'm just like, Okay, you know, <laughs> no, it all works. I mean yeah. I was just really I was amazed by... I mean, either that or his editor is incredible.
2: Joe Hill definitely has an eye for detail. And maybe some of this was Gabriel Rodriguez, too. But, like, just flipping through, like, even the art, there's so many small things. Yeah. Um, like, the bad guy at one point is literally reading on evil. Right. <laughs> uh, and at a different point, somebody who's a ghost is wearing a Pac-Man shirt. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's just, like, a lot of fun Easter eggs and... You know, almost every page, there's just some detail.
1: I should say, it's called Lock and Key, A, because the family is the Lock family, and B, because the house that they moved to is called the Key House, because it is full of keys that that have different magical properties.
0: Which is something that I was concerned about. There was a point at which I was concerned about the keys, like, probably about halfway through, and I think it's either volume three or four, I think it might be four, where the keys just start coming at a pretty fast pace. Yeah. And it started it started getting real. Dial H for hero, you know. And I yep. was just like, Oh my God, what are you doing? And um, but but they, they pull the nose of the plane up pretty well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's for it's when they're they're going through like all those battles in one month. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, and it's just like every day they find a new key. Yeah. And it's like this one gives you wings. <laughs> this one makes yeah. you super strong. <laughs> This one does something really stupid, like, yeah. <laughs> one of which is the dramatic flashback key.
1: <laughs> the dramatic flashback key is the best one.
2: It's so <laughs> useful. They're literally like, this is the most useful key. If only we had had this key the first time. Yeah. <laughs> we would know all about the keys.
1: But yeah, they 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 do introduce, like, a bunch of them that you're not sure how devastating or how purposeful they should be until it comes back in book six, and you're like, Oh, right. That was in literally one panel in book four. The art in this by Gabriel Rodriguez is superb.
2: It starts it's out amazing. shaky, I think. in the first, especially in the first volume, Or you kind of have to get used to it. Um, he's not great at drawing crying people, which is not the best when you're doing a family tragedy.
1: Yeah, I didn't notice the crying people thing. I wonder if that actually influenced the story.
0: I don't know. I think that's an interesting point. I hadn't really considered how he draws, how people cry. Um, But looking, kind of flipping through it now and kind of looking at it, it's like everybody just kind of leaks, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but they're still kind of doing whatever they were doing. But uh, to be honest with you, that is, that's not something I picked up on. And I, I, I hesitate to throw my hat in with Austin on this one because I find the art extremely compelling otherwise. I think that it's, I think it's incredible art.
1: Yeah, no, I I love the art. It's colored really well. Uh, it felt kind of like watching a really good animated series.
0: Agreed. I mean, I know that they've had problems trying to launch it as a TV show and the movies aren't going to happen at this point. Yeah. And I know that Joe Hill has talked about revisiting it as a TV show. Um, which, you know, if he can make that happen, great. They should really consider following an animated course on this one. Yeah. You know. I mean, they've got everything they need here. And unlike a lot of anime, it has really good writing. So <laughs> they should go for it, you know. I think volume four, if there is a low point in a series, it's in volume four. And it's again, it's you know, where they're kinda slamming the keys out pretty hot and heavy there. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of kind of tips of the hat there you know there's a clash of the titans tip of the hat there's some other stuff going on and that stuff is cute and there's a lot of talking in that particular section of the series but which is kind of high schooly and that's appropriate yeah but um you know i think that that was kind of intended to kind of make it seem a little light and ultimately it just it just dipped as opposed to ruined anything it didn't ruin anything it just kind of dipped for me And I'm sure for some readers, that was fine. They were just like, yo, that's... You know, if they're younger than I am, which is very possible and likely, you know, they may have dug those sections, you know?
2: Yeah. I kind of liked it because it reminded me a lot of, like, an episodic, like, children's cartoon, but where you actually see the sort of aftermath of constantly having to, like, fight the bad guy every day and the, like, exhaustion that comes out of it. I thought that was kind of interesting. I mean, that whole... Volume I feel like sort of focuses on subverting these tropes and like stories about young people.
1: Yeah, because they they follow up the the many keys issue with um one that focuses on Rufus. Yeah. Um, who's the special needs character in the book, and uh, that is a hundred thousand percent a Stephen King trope. Um, <laughs> the the introduction of a child who is. In some form developmentally disabled, who is able to understand magic that other people aren't. That is like every Stephen King book from the late 70s, early 80s.
0: This is very true.
1: Um, and, he, and it he pulls it off here, I think.
2: Yeah, like, it's difficult to say actually what exactly is wrong with him. Because he's definitely a very like uniquely developed character.
1: It at the beginning it seemed to me that they were going to use him as like a prop basically for the mother. Yeah. And then he becomes his own character, and it's really it. He has an issue in book four that is told mainly from his perspective, which offers you the option of whether or not he will be a hero or not.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, look, this is Stephen King's kid, so no, <laughs> that's not gonna hap- That's not how that's gonna go. Yeah. <laughs> you know the shining that's not how that goes um what's the other one uh Dreamcatcher, that's not how that goes you know that's he, just not how that goes you know
2: he definitely does have an important part to play in the oh, yeah. last they, section yeah
1: and they they story. usually do even in the Stephen King books but not the point that not the pivotal role that it looks like they're going to have yeah but yeah he's he's a fully developed character and he's more than just a developmentally disabled child, but he is also that.
0: Yeah, I mean, that that could have gone south, and I think that there are some people who, you know, people who are um, particularly invested in special needs representation in literature, in mm-hmm. art, who may even still, uh, despite how this character is handled, take issue with this character.
2: I mean, I think and, there are things to take issue with. Um, yeah. So, like, it's definitely not... The best portrayal, it's clumsy at times.
0: Well, I just, you know, you always kind of want to be... I I don't want to tell a writer how to do their job, of course, but, Mm. you know, in this day and age, if nothing else, you always kind of want to be mindful of, you know, am I treating this character magically? Am I, you know, is there something (laughs) inherently... Am I suggesting that there is something inherently magical about being uh, that way? And... Personally, I didn't feel like Joe Hill did a disservice here because um, this, this – I mean, if his father had done this, this would have been a really gross misrepresentation. His, you know, Stephen King is horrible with special needs characters but, yeah. or any character that kind of – just isn't a white guy really. Yeah, but, and that, there were two
1: instances in here where the first time I was reading it where I was worried like they show that the queer character seems to be more magical – than the other adults but then that's explained in the over the course of the story that it's not because it's queer it's because he was the youngest person when everything was happening yeah um, youth is an important part of the story although
2: i was kind of bothered that they kept making jokes about the fact that like when the uncle was younger the gay uncle was younger like oh he kept wanting to like turn into a girl all the time so he's like that was obviously like something that made him gay and i was like uh I didn't I
1: didn't take it that they were saying that's what made him gay. Yeah. I took it as like that is a thing that I imagine a queer person of that era who lived in the, in the East Coast in a magical house might do. Yeah.
2: Um
0: I I, I wasn't offended I cut,
2: by it. Yeah.
0: I noticed that too, Austin, and I I really did feel like that was just kind of some comic book shorthand happening
2: there. Yeah.
0: Um which I mean again, you know that Maybe that could have been handled politically a little differently, but then, you know, it is ultimately a horror comic, you know, so it's not it's not necessarily going to be particularly mindful or aware of a better way to do that. It's going to kind of throw it in your face. It, it's better if it's visual, yada, 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 even if it doesn't necessarily politically line up.
2: I don't think that's an excuse use though because they could have had the uncle be exactly the same way that he is without mentioning that like as a kid he totally used the gender key all the time i get the joke right and it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with it i just noticed that and i was like eh i could have done without that Mm -hmm. um
1: i was impressed that they didn't make either of the two major characters of color magical because that's a big Stephen King thing to do. Well, on that
0: one, I just deferred to Joe Hill's uh general lack of use of characters of color. So, I...
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's yeah. also true.
0: I think I'm okay with that. I think I don't I don't know. I I would love to ask him someday, you know, if he how he ever processed that growing up around his father but in his work yeah, cuz there's there's
1: one in there's one character of color. Well, actually there's two in the older generation.
2: And yeah, then they, in the new generation, I guess it's just uh the other friend. Yeah, I don't remember either not. of
1: the friends' names.
2: There's tattoo friend.
1: Yeah. <laughs> there's sex pistol fan.
2: And then there's black friend. <laughs> uh.
0: It's okay. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and then there was also the uh, the detective who oh, um, yeah. has the african surname although i'm not sure how he is um was raised as a character we don't really delve into his past at all really but right and there's the so, nurse yeah, the de- yeah. Um, and let us not forget the point at which some white people turn black briefly you know so that was not a
1: high point in the series <laughs>
0: Maybe I'm getting, I don't know, old, but a dad did, I mean, visually, I was just kind of watching that. Yeah. But for the purposes of the story, you know, it was kind of interesting where they take this detour into discussing race and kind of navigating race a little bit, which I thought was interesting. They introduced it with the red herring. So,
1: yeah.
0: you know, when you have the old woman in the chair, you know, repeating white, white, whitey, white, white, over, whatever, Um, you know, you think that's going one direction. Obviously, we we know that because we're like five books into this thing, four or five books into this, we know that that can't obviously be what's happening. Right. But all the characters around that character are responding to her as if that is what's happening. And so at that point, you know, the narrative takes takes an opportunity to address race in a pretty unrealistic way, but, you know, in a very unrealistic way, but... Uh, But I wasn't um, over the top offended by it or anything. I just thought, oh, well, I guess if we're going, I mean, we can't just sneak into the asylum. Like, you know, okay. (laughs) like you would have a better chance of sneaking into asylum if you aren't two little black kids than if you're two little white kids. Yeah. So for the record, not that I've (laughs) tried it. I'm just guessing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And then they they address the fact that very briefly that what they've done is really screwed up in the fact that now there there are two imaginary black children being blamed for these murders, which they Jeez. never go back to. But the police are on the lookout for two black children, and there's just, like, one page where they're like, well, that, that was really fucked up, wasn't it? <laughs> like, <laughs> at least you're addressing that that's really fucked up. But, yeah, that's really fucked up. Yeah. It doesn't do a terrible job as far as a cast that contains a few characters of color and one almost major queer character in it. Um, but it also, you know, I don't think it won any GLAD or NAACP awards either. <laughs> no. Was not nominated.
0: No, I, I, I will say that lock and key hits its quota. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Was there anything else
1: in particular about the series that struck you, Scott?
0: Just that I really enjoyed it, and I really, I would recommend it really to almost anyone who reads almost anything. I was really surprised how uh, hard I fell for it. Because, it, you know, with me and comics in general anymore, you know, I'm real uh, cynical. I think that it, it can be hard to do anything not original in comics. I think comic doesn't suffer from an originality problem. I think it suffers from an execution problem. And I, and I really felt like this one just kind of nailed all of the sides for me. You know, the execution was strong. The idea was strong. It was original enough. And, um, you know, we could have had this conversation completely devoid of any Stephen King reference. Yep. Uh, I think Joe Hill's work in this instance clearly stands on its own.
2: Yeah. This is definitely nothing that I would have ever associated with stephen king
0: right um
2: except for the one very obvious carrie reference and
0: yeah (laughs) yes yeah 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 yeah.
2: but um (laughs) i think um... it
1: only comes up because if you're going to do literary comparisons in horror um there's like three horror writers that i can think of that do similar things with like Specifically, the characters with developmental disabilities, and it's very specifically Joe Hill. But just in this series, I I don't remember any other characters in his other works that are developmentally disabled. But then it's Stephen yeah. King, and then it's Dean Koontz.
2: <laughs> I forgot about Dean Koontz.
1: The world, if they're lucky, has forgotten about Dean Koontz.
2: But they uh, made an Odd Thomas movie <laughs> and, and an Odd Thomas manga
1: odd
0: thomas manga i don't know about this
2: it was bad
0: no (laughs) no i i came across that too that was really weak
2: yeah like i actually really liked the odd thomas books and like the odd thomas manga just let me down Uh it was a low bar already (laughs) (laughs) one thing i did want to talk about and i think this is sort of a joe hill thing is there's this weird undercurrent of sexual violence mostly towards women throughout so much of his books and it's all through lock and key um like when the father is murdered yeah um the mother is also raped right and they don't talk about that until much later in the series um and there's also this whole thing with the bad guy and this woman that he's coercing into helping him that's very very rapey the whole time um
1: well, it's, it's interesting because technically the one of the keys that's in the book, and I don't think this is too much of a spoiler because you get to it in the first volume, is called the head key. And in it you can open up a person's head and remove memories or emotions, or you can implant things in there. And that the existence of that key is fairly rapey. And the, the ways in which it's used at other times, it's just not explicitly rapey. But yeah. in the relationship between... The character who was the lady in the well, and another particular character, it uh, because of their relationship, it seems excessively
0: rapey. Oh no, it's totally rapey.
2: Yeah, like there's a woman who gets abused pretty much throughout the whole series. Oh yeah. Um, basically every time you meet up with her again, and that's yeah, she's
1: she's an abusive past with her mother.
2: Yeah. And then, yeah, it's kind of and like that's in that's in horns too. Um, oh
0: yeah oh my god yeah
2: and i just i'm really tired of rape as a trope in horror because it's almost always rape against women and i feel like i'm not scared of that anymore because it's something i just have to live with it's like a way that like male writers often they're like this is how you know it's like a gritty scary story is like someone's gonna get raped and i'm like no
0: so just out of curiosity did y'all do a show on jessica jones
2: we, we talked about it
0: we didn't because uh
1: while we were planning on doing it anthony uh got married and we stopped doing the show uh mm. during the time when it came out
2: but i always okay.
1: want
0: to talk about
2: Jessica I, Jones. I only mention
0: it now because i'm kind of curious to see what you guys think in terms of like since we're talking about you know the whole trope of rape Uh, Um, in you know fantastic literature and stories that kind of thing and how it's used if you have any kind of offering on how i get i don't want to say how it was used but i guess how it was used (laughs) in jessica jones
2: but like jessica jones was a story about jessica jones and like the aftermath of what had happened to her it wasn't just like this kind of note and i mean in lock and key the mother definitely i don't know you never really see the mother's journey in context of that That's just something that they're like, this caused your alcoholism. And, like, you see her grieve over the dead father, but you never see her deal with that. Whereas Jessica Jones was about how you move past something and how you figure out also, like, how to build a community to help other people. And I know it's really complicated. It's a really good show. It does it right.
1: (laughs) I think the reason why the mother, I mean, you don't get to see a lot of her from her point of view, you get a few moments of, you know, this is her struggle, etc. But it's because the focus of this book is on the kids' generation. Yeah. Because you also, you know, you have a pretty intense thing early on happen to the uncle, a couple things in a row that are really intense happen to the uncle, and then they just sort of move away from it until it's convenient to bring him back into the story. Yeah. Because you're only mostly seeing things from the kids' perspective.
2: Yeah. No, that's fair. I feel like Jessica Jones is important because it's a story about women um, and almost only about women. There's really only, like, Luke Cage is there, but he's great. He can stay. I'm excited (laughs) for his show. Uh, And, like, and then the bad guy. Yeah. And, like, and her awesome neighbor who doesn't start out awesome but becomes awesome. (laughs) Shout out to Mason. And the fireman. Well, he's not a fireman. He's a policeman. He's a
1: policeman. You're right. Sorry. Sorry. And Please. he
2: maybe is evil. Maybe not. Jessica Jones is about not trusting men, except Luke Cage. <laughs> and even then, be <laughs> double sure. Because maybe it's not Luke Cage.
1: Uh, yeah, we should do a show, though, when they maybe when they do season two. I mean, that was the best Marvel series that they've done so far. And I, yeah. I really like Daredevil, but Jessica Jones was, for me anyways, more even.
2: Yeah,
0: I think so. Which was, you know, interesting too. Like, I think I think I have to agree so far. Um, even though I struggled with it initially because it was so different from the book. And I was just like, ugh, what are you doing? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I just, you know, and it's something that as a fan of comics and a fan of films and a dissatisfied – Begrudging fan of comic films, <laughs> <laughs> you know it's just something that I I think I've just realized that I've had to come to terms with the fact that I'm just going to have to turn that off. You know, I just I just cannot go to any of these films or any of these shows caring about the comic whatsoever. Yeah, I'm currently you know in the middle of a breakup with Preacher, and so
2: <laughs> oh, you no. know. And, and,
0: And that's the icing on the cake. I was just like, that broke me. That, like, I think I may have even shed a tear when I was watching that. I was just like, this is not happening. You know, so.
1: How much of it did you watch?
0: I've watched the first two episodes.
1: Okay. I've only seen the first one.
0: Yeah. um, I was
1: intrigued, but it's definitely different.
0: Oh, my. yeah, And the second one, the second episode will not rectify that for you okay i feel like you know well look almost nobody who's watching the tv show is aware of the comic at this point you know the audience for it is way larger than the comic would have ever been whatever right and so you really 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 could have called this something else you know and and not made my penis weep i don't know but (laughs) just like it was just really destroying me watching
2: that Like at this point I don't even care if something's true to the comics. I just want it to be good. Which is why I really liked Jessica Jones. Because I watched it and I was like, that was good. Or like season like the first season of Daredevil even was for the most part pretty good. And I was like, Yeah, I can do this. I can be on board with sad skinny jeans, Daredevil. (laughs) (laughs) And then they made him get rid of his skinny jeans and I can't watch it anymore.
1: but the Punisher arc was so good.
2: The Punisher arc was really good. It was just <laughs>
0: the one in was the middle
2: good. of the Electra arc, unfortunately. I,
0: I have never liked Electra. I think that she's flawed at at the source. I've never yeah. really been a fan of that. All right,
1: Dad, so yeah, I, think, I think we're done talking about Joe Hill right now. So thank you for joining us, Scott.
0: Thank you. I had a blast.
2: Excellent. It was great talking to you.
0: Okay, take care, guys.
2: You too. Bye.
0: Bye. Bye.
1: issues came out this week, and some of them actually contain plots and storylines and, and things happen.
2: Joe Hill has a new book.
1: With Gabriel Rodriguez, who is also the artist on Lock and Key. Um, they're also from IDW, who's the company that put out Lock and Key. It's Tales from the Dark Side, number one, which is based on the TV show Tales from the Dark Side, and it is, in fact, one of the scripts For the TV show, for Tales from the Dark Side, that never made it to air. Uh, And this first story that they're working on is called Sleepwalker. Much like Lock and Key, I enjoy the art a little bit. It's colored differently, and I preferred the colors on Lock and Key. But that's a high bar.
2: I don't know, I kind of liked the more muted color tones for this one. Um...
1: Ah, also this is interesting. So, Joe Hill wrote the script... But the adaptation is by Michael Benedetto. It's a sci-fi story. If you've ever seen the Tales from the Dark Side TV show or the movie, um, it was an anthology series about supernatural tales. And that's what this is. It's about a kid who works as a lifeguard who accidentally causes someone to die. Kind of. Kind of. That person might have died anyways. Um, but he fell asleep while being a lifeguard and he feels guilty about it, and then sci fi stuff happens. And it's it's an alright story. It's not super duper interesting to me. And also, while I love Gabriel Rodriguez's art, kind of there's one page right at the beginning, like it's page two and three, where it is unclear if even if you are someone who reads a lot of comics, Exactly in which order you're supposed to read the panels. And it's not confusing and awful and badly designed or anything like that. It just, it took a minute to be like, oh, that's how you're doing it. And it's the only page like that in the book. And I don't know why it's like that, honestly. It's the dream
2: sequence. Yeah. Slash flashback. Yeah.
1: But you, there are better ways to have done it, I feel.
2: I think it is going to start hinting at like sort of this greater dark side mythology because there's a character introduced really early on. who's like, I'm trying to help you. And then he immediately falls asleep because of the plot MacGuffin of the week. Um,
1: So Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez also did that. I mean, Gabriel Rodriguez has done other things as has Joe Hill. Uh, Lock and key is the best thing they've done. Um, There was a one shot called Kodiak about a bear that I remember enjoying when it came out. Also, Joe Hill and Jason Caramella co-wrote a series called The Cape, which was illustrated first by Zach Howard, and then they did another mini-series that was illustrated by Nelson Daniel, and that's about Vietnam. Uh, He also, Joe Hill, did another series with Jason Caramella called Thumbprint, which I have not, I own, I haven't actually read yet, I, I let someone borrow it for this podcast, and I don't think they read it either. <laughs> but Wraith, Welcome to Christmas Land, which was a a prelude, I guess, or prequel to Nosferatu, was phenomenal. Art by C.P. Wilson third. I have not read Nosferatu yet, but I loved Wraith, and it made me want to read it. Uh, and the only other thing, really, is uh, there's a book called Road Rage. <laughs> no! Which uh was by Joe Hill and Stephen King and Richard Matheson who wrote the original movie Road Rage and uh this is a book for men. <laughs> for men who like words like dickbag and like it was their
2: dick wad. Oh dick You're
1: right. I apologize. It's got motorcycles and trucks. Yeah.
2: Yeah, stuff.
1: Uh it's not terrible. The art in it is is really interesting. Um, at the beginning, (laughs) I just flipped to the back and I was like, that looks terrible. Uh, I think there were two issues and that this collects both of them. Yeah. So the, the first issue was written by Joe Hill and Stephen King adapted by Chris Ryell, and art by Nelson Daniel, who also did the second version of the Cape. Um, and that's pretty good. Uh, Duel by Richard Matheson with art by Rafa Garris. However, I do not like the art on this. It's, it looks It's wet. messy. Yeah, it's wet and brown and yellow and just...
2: Sometimes the style works, but I think yeah. not in this case.
1: No. I was not on board. It was
2: like, we're trying to be even grittier than this gritty story about dudes. Driving stuff.
1: Get out of the way, you son of a bitch! Yeah, it's just, I'm I'm not the person that this is for, even though I do really like Joe Hill and Stephen King. It's still Rebirth at DC. And, oh, Titans.
2: Rebirth oh, yeah. Titans is where I think we should start. Yes. Because it's, Wally West is not remembered by anyone again.
1: <laughs> wow, I, I don't remember that from such stories as Flash Rebirth or Rebirth.
2: Uh, this time, it's Flash Rebirth, but with the cast of Teen Titans, but they're now the Titans, because that happened at yeah, some they point. they
1: aged out of the T name.
2: Which makes sense, you know, but it's not as catchy now. No. Teen Titans definitely works much better than Titans. Titans sounds a little cocky. Yeah. Whereas, like, Teen Titans, you're like, oh, it's cute. See? I think,
1: no, I think that works with Nightwing's outfit, though. <laughs> they, they get into the cocky times.
2: It's true. It's true.
1: Uh, but yeah, nothing happens in this issue other than uh, nobody remembers Wally West at the beginning, and at the end, they do. There. You didn't have to spend $3 on Titans Rebirth number one.
2: Wally's like, guys, don't you remember when we sat on the Batmobile? Because Robin's dad is Batman?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of like one-page flashbacks where it's like, hey, we ate pizza together once. Yay. Other Rebirth stuff that came out? Batman number one rebirth and Superman number one rebirth, not to be confused with Batman Rebirth number one or Superman Rebirth number one.
2: In which also nothing happened.
1: Right. Well
2: I I feel like Things happen in these. Yeah. Things happen. Things have started to happen with these new Right.
1: It's really just the the if the D C comic you pick up has a giant blue banner that says rebirth Don't waste your money. Nothing happens. Yeah, if Rebirth is roughly the same size letters as DC, you're good. If it's much bigger, don't buy it. Um, I'm not saying that you should definitely buy Batman number one or Superman number one because they're good. I'm saying they at least have events happen in them which are maybe worth $2.99 if you're invested in those characters.
2: Um, Superman is definitely the star of the two, yes, because it's more interesting and it's less stupid. Yep. Um, Batman was Batman was pretty bad this week.
1: It's uh, it's not a great start for Tom King, but he does do something that makes me want to read issue two. Uh, But I will have incredibly low expectations for it.
2: Yeah. um, Basically, everything, the art is really nice, like classic feeling Batman art. Um, And then the things Batman is doing just gets incredibly like worse and worse. And eventually you've got like a rocket boosted chair happening and some ridiculous plane shenanigans. Yeah. And then it ends on like a really interesting note. And you're like, where did that come from? That's a plot point I care about.
1: Yeah. And that's, so it's written by Tom King, who's a good writer. Uh, David Finch does the pencils on this, and David Finch is a great artist. Uh, Jordi Belair colored it, and as we've said, she can color pretty much anything, and I'm on board. Um, yeah, it's, this was a, a not great Batman comic, but it has a plot point at the end that it could be, you know, at least more interesting than Bunny Ears Batman. Yeah,
2: um, Tom King is an ex CIA agent.
1: I did not know that. The Superman story starts off very heavy handed for me. Like just the narration boxes. And then, so in Superman Rebirth number one, as opposed to this, which is Superman number one Rebirth, uh, the current Clark Kent Superman had the black suit on. And in this one, he's back to the classic blue and with the red and yellow Superman logo. And uh, this is about Clark Kent Family Man and his son, who is half Kryptonian and has some superpowers that maybe he doesn't quite have control of yet.
2: It ends in kind of an interesting place, too.
1: It it has a pretty good twist for what's going to happen in the book. So yeah, currently Peter J. Tomasi is the writer, along with Patrick Gleason, who's the co-writer and also the artist. There were some good notes to this book, but in the end it was a Superman book, which isn't my, my thing.
2: Yeah, baby Superman has his traumatizing X-Men superpowers moment. Yeah. And when you're like, I think I saw this in an X-Men movie once, you probably did. (laughs)
1: Because there's been no shortage of X-Men movies. So they also this week released The Dark Knight Returns The Last Crusade, which is a prequel to The Dark Knight Returns The Master Race, and maybe takes place before The Dark Knight strikes again. I don't remember, uh, and I'm not going back and rereading them. Um, But this, so it's by Frank Miller and Brian Azzarello with art by John Romita Jr. Apart from Brian Azzarello, this is nobody I'm excited about in any way, shape, or form. Uh, But this was actually pretty good. Yeah. I mean, this was better than any of the Dark Knight Returns Master Race issues so far, and not just because of the name.
2: Yeah, no, I was definitely surprised at, um, like, the art's pretty good, and it doesn't feel like a Frank Miller book to me as much. Yeah. Uh, which is good it's at this really point. It's really only
1: the panel layout that looks like a Dark Knight book.
2: Yeah, it's kind of an interesting Batman story with uh, the Jason Todd Robin.
1: This is very rare for Frank Miller, in that there is a hyper-violent scene that technically happens in the book, but you don't really see it. You just know that it happens. <laughs> and that's that was actually good, interesting storytelling, I thought. Yeah. Yeah, and this is a one-shot. You don't have to have read any of the other Dark Knight series, and don't. Um, <laughs> don't do that to yourself uh, to read this. It's just kind of an alternate imagining of a famous Batman story. You know, it's part of DC's... All books cost $2.99 from now on, so it is, of course, $6.99. Uh, but it's prestige format, and it's uh, it's higher quality. There's than almost
2: any... a whole sp- It's like a spine on yeah. it. That's your $6 right there, is that spine.
1: I think it's actually the same rough length as The Killing Joke. But that's, en- that's enough of DC. There's some Marvel stuff that came out this week. Is uh, there? There is, yes. Yeah, so let's start with the cream of the crap. Um, (laughs) Civil War 2 is still happening And uh, it's Civil War 2 X-Men number 1 this week How did you feel about it, Austin?
2: I felt that they have run out of ideas again (laughs) Because, man, I hated this so much (laughs) Um, you start out. Magneto's doing some good shit for mutants. He's like, "Oh, I remembered. I'm actually like a civil rights leader or whatever." So I like went out to save all the poor people in the city who might die from the Terrigen mist. And I was like, "Fuck yeah, this is the Magneto I want. This is the Magneto that Brian Singer hates." Yeah. <laughs> and um, and then that's immediately ruined. Yes. And uh, in the midst of that being ruined, they're like suddenly plot exposition, but in our dialogue. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, yes. These Sentinels. These human hybrid things have come to murder us, the mutants, because they hate us. This is how people speak in real life in the middle of battles. They explain to passerbys what they're fighting. (laughs) Uh, Team Magneto does all have matching leather suits this time, uh, which is a step up from previous Team Magnetos.
1: Yeah, yeah, where they they just clashed.
2: No, it's all black and red now, very classy. It's better. And then uh, the X-Men show up, and they're like, Magneto, you're doing the things we're doing, but differently. And we don't like that because you try to kill people. Magneto's like, but murder's not that bad.
1: <laughs> and this is to clarify, I believe Magneto is currently in charge of the, he's in charge of the Uncanny X-Men. So that's one team. And then the Storm, Iceman, Jean Grey, Old Man Logan, not to be confused with Wolverine. Uh, and whatever version of Nightcrawler is currently bamfing around the Marvel universe are the extraordinary X-Men. It's uh, it's not great. It's yeah. not terrible.
2: I don't know. I it's sad to me that I like the like Magneto outfits better than I like the classic X-Men. Yeah. Uh, cause Storm's outfit. I mean, she does have her mohawk, which is the best Storm look. Yes. Uh, but she's also got like her midriff showing. This is like Team Midriff, and then Nightcrawler <laughs> is wearing like a parka. underneath his thousand belts yeah Um,
1: but yeah these outfits are terrible
2: however there is one mutant that can be seen running away in this panel who i will call tentacle arms okay and i would like to petition marvel for the tentacle arms civil war series okay because i think he has some stories to tell (laughs) or she it's hard to say what gender tentacle arms is
1: um there's no midriff showing so it's a dude uh, yeah, let me, who's, who's the creative team on that? Civil
2: War II, uh, X-Men number one, is written by Colin Bunn. Uh, artist, uh, Andrea Bricardo. Colorist, uh, Jesus Ebertov. Oh. Yeah, uh, I mean, the art's pretty good, actually. Yeah. Um, I had no qualms with the art.
1: Also out this week, Star Wars Han Solo by Marjorie Liu, with art by Mark Brooks and colors by Sonia Obak. I like all of these creators but I just didn't care about this book at all
2: it's like a decent Star Wars story yeah um
1: it's here's the thing the Marvel has been doing a bunch of stories that have been really interesting and like focusing some stuff on Darth Vader that I hadn't thought of and it's entirely possible because Marjorie Liu is a fantastic writer that this will go somewhere interesting yeah uh in issue two but I I just didn't care about this book at all Like, just Han Solo being belligerent for a reason we're not entirely sure of. Something bad happened after uh, New Hope. This takes place between New Hope and Empire, like most of, but not all of their book. It's like when Dark Horse had seven or eight different Star Wars series going on that, like, there's only so many Star Wars stories I can care about. uh, And this just isn't the one.
2: Yeah, this could definitely go places. Yeah. Just not the most exciting start. Um, the art's pretty good. Uh, yeah. they went into the movie accuracy kind of art again.
1: It felt like a setup. Yeah. Like, like the second issue, maybe should have been the first, and maybe we didn't need this.
2: The so last of our Marvel number ones this week. So vote Loki, Marvel's take on political satire in the modern age, number one. Uh, so this is written by Christopher Hastings, uh, with art by Langdon Foss, and uh, color by Chris Chuckry. Yeah, the art I actually really liked. Uh, it's fun. It matches the light tone that the book has. Um, this is a really weird book. Loki has 6 o'clock shadow the whole... Wait, 5 o'clock shadow. I mean,
1: it could be 6 o'clock.
2: Whatever. Like, It's kind of a weird way to draw Loki where he just looks kind of scrubby Yeah. the whole time. Basically, Loki is running for president. And uh, there's this reporter lady who's like... But you're terrible. And he's like, cool, I'm going to run for president. Would you feel better if I ran for president as a woman? Because I can do that. I can do that for you.
1: It's not a bad comic. The art is good. The story is interesting. I actually think it would be more interesting as a one-shot. Like, maybe I don't need to know what happens after this. It certainly didn't make me like Loki. No. Loki is definitely still the god of mischief and a creep in this book.
2: He's super creepy.
1: Yeah. Um, but, to be real, less creepy than the main two people currently running for president. Yeah. A Year of Marvel's The Incredibles, number one, because there there's been at least one other A Year of Marvel's that came out that we didn't talk about, nor did I read. Uh, and after reading this one, um, maybe I'm not going to go back and read the other one either. This appears to be an anthology series. With different sets of writers and artists. And um, the first of these stories is about a reporter slash... He's not really a reporter. He's a designer who works, I think, for a newspaper. Uh, whose name is Jean Grey. Uh, no relation to the Phoenix, but everybody that he works with jokes about him being having the same name as the Phoenix. Um, and he's an everyday doof. And his life is difficult, and he doesn't like superheroes. And it's silly, and it's not bad. Uh, I actually really enjoy his interaction with a character called Demolition Man, no relation to the Sylvester Stallone movie, (laughs) but whose costume is essentially... And when I saw it, I was like, why is that guy wearing a Daredevil-slash-Wolverine costume? That doesn't make any sense. But they point that out. Um it's kind of a funny story early on gene gray is telling his co-worker how uh there was a plane accident on his way to las vegas and he was rescued by thor and like they're showing the flashback and it's classic thor helping it out and then his friend is like but thor's a lady now and he's like i can't even imagine what that's like <laughs> except they show what he's imagining which is classic male thor but with huge breasts And then she corrects him and the art is actual current Thor. It's silly. It's not necessary for anything. I don't think it's a part of, you know, the important post-Secret Wars Marvel Universe. I don't think we'll ever see that Jean Grey guy again. But I might be wrong. It's written and drawn by Yves Bigorel. Uh, The colorist is Andres Massa.
2: In the second story, we have the Laura Kenny Wolverine, who is the, uh... Formerly X-2-3. Formerly X-2-3 and currently Wolverine, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's not a bad story. I actually couldn't really read the first story because it was kind of really over the top. Yeah. Um, And I managed to read most of this one, but it's also kind of bad. Um, you do get to see She-Hulk, and I always love She-Hulk. But, like, there's Wendigos, but they're, like, Lady Wendigos because, like, it's this lady team and they can only fight other ladies. I actually like a lot of the dialogue. Like, I like the interactions between Wolverine and She-Hulk. I just, the plot is really bad. Uh, The creative team for the second story is Dennis Culver is the writer, um and Leonardo Romero as the artist and Ruth Redmond uh, doing colors.
1: And I think that's it. So uh, so that's all we have to talk about this week. We're going to be back next week where we're going to talk about Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur! Woo! I'm excited about this.
2: See you next week.
1: Uh, good night and uh, God Vex.
2: Electra, and yet they failed again. The only time they succeeded was Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> Wait, was that Jennifer, Jennifer Lawrence? No, it's no. not Jennifer Lawrence. That's Mystique.
1: Right, it's not. It's also not Jennifer Aniston. Garner, <laughs> the other one, Jennifer Garner. Garner. Thank you.
2: <laughs> Jennifer Garner was so good.
1: <laughs> I, I now have Mike Doty's twenty-seven Jennifer stuck in my head. <laughs>
2: Hashtag one true Electra. <laughs>